Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. In this episode, we take a look at the history of unification of the armed forces under a single Department of Defense. Even today, we hear calls for the elimination of duplication, competition, and overlap between the military services. Proponents believe that military affairs can be brought into a state of perfection. But could you imagine if the government decided that only IBM could build computers? Or only Ford could build cars? And only AT&T could provide telecommunications? It's pretty clear that innovation would have been stopped in its tracks. Unification under a single Secretary of Defense, however, was not sufficient to bring on its own centralization and top-down control of weapon systems desired by its proponents. The Secretary's most important tool became the budget process for dictating the objectives and the activities of the military services. Yet this required a revolution in defense management under the banner of program budgeting, a revolution that could not come to fruition during the 1950s. The following provides an overview of two chapters. First, how calls for centralization resulted in unification of the armed forces. And second, the seeds of program budgeting, which was intended to be the administrative tool of centralized decision makers. The story of how the United States military became centralized and sclerotic really started during its most innovative period of World War II. In April 1944, the Second World War continued to rage with stalling Allied advance in Italy, the Marines fully engaged in island hopping in the Pacific, and the D-Day landings in Normandy still a few months away. Victory was perhaps not obvious to those fighting the war, but back in Washington, D.C., top officials were already discussing what came next. Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall set the pieces in motion for centralization. He complained that a lack of unity had handicapped the war effort. Army and Navy advocates could not coordinate their forces in theater, nor could they coordinate procurement and supply. His concerns led to a series of congressional hearings. There, Secretary of War Henry Stimson carried forward General Marshall's arguments. Quote, There have been in this war, in spite of the earnest efforts of military leaders of the two services at cooperation, many duplications of time, material, and manpower with the loss of effectiveness, resources, and power such duplications inevitably produce. End quote. Several men followed Stimson with examples of this duplication, including General Marshall's deputy, Joseph McNarney. He brought a chart showing how military services should be united under the Secretary of the Armed Forces, who would reverse the traditional bottom-up process. 
the central tools of the secretary would be a unified budget. Here's a quote from Lieutenant General Joseph McNarney, quote, Now, the Army and the Navy submit separate budgets. They are not coordinated by any single agency. The control of the money, of course, is not just what makes military forces work. It's what makes the world go round. That's one great unification, end quote. After three full days of testimonies from the War Department about the need for centralized decision-making, the Navy had finally had its first witness. Although the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, might have been expected to lead this discussion, he died that very day of a heart attack on April 28, 1944. Despite the loss, the Navy had found a strong advocate in the Undersecretary of the Navy, James Forrestal. As the one man more responsible than any other for buying the wartime Navy, Forrestal had an intimate understanding of public procurement and a keen intuition for how complex organizations work. He had no illusions about the difficulties of administering operations on the scale which the war required. Forrestal advocated for a decentralized approach. Quote, However it may be organized, the military effort will inevitably involve multitudinous forms of planning, procurement, communication, supply, and actual fighting. I believe that the economies gained through consolidation of administrative functions obviously seem bound to produce great savings. In actual practice, it is frequently discovered that these probabilities that seem so clear on paper were often difficult to transform into reality. You will recall that one architect of railroad consolidations finally decided that no one man could run more than 10,000 miles of railroad. There are certain things in the field of procurement where duplication has been, in my opinion, and I say it very humbly, extremely wise. I think that in certain elements of ordnance, and certainly in aircraft, the fact that there was a friendly competition between the types of aircraft gave the Navy dive bombers, and I do not believe that we would have had dive bombing as either a material or an art without it. End quote. Forrestal hammered the unseen cost of centralization, that important weapon systems and military arts enabled by them would go undeveloped. Many instances of so-called duplication had actually taken different approaches. Dive bombing, for example, required the Navy to develop air-cooled engines and the tactics to go with it. This capability sank all four Japanese carriers at Midway. The president of Fairchild Engine and Airplane Corporation, J. Carlton Ward, agreed. He testified that no other nation had such a strong naval arm that could compare to the United States. Quote, In discussing the problem with some of the naval officers of the countries, their procurements were generally dominated by the biggest procurer of planes, which was the Army. And so the peculiar and specialized requirements of naval weapons were given low place on the agenda. The result has been, as you gentlemen know, that the British Navy today is relying heavily upon American-developed naval air weapons. End quote. After hearing 28 witnesses on whether to unify the armed forces into one centralized structure, Congress decided to table the topic. But the stakes remained high. Forrestal feared that the Army intended to make the Navy another arm for itself. On May 31, 1946, Forrestal wrote a joint letter to President Harry Truman with War Secretary Robert Patterson about their compromises. Forrestal could tolerate unification if it left intact the Navy's integrity. 
The National Security Act of 1947 united the War and Navy Departments for the first time under a Secretary of Defense, but it was a weak secretary. Coordination of weapon systems and supply continued to happen through joint boards like the Munitions Board and the Research and Development Board. War Secretary Patterson refused this feeble Secretary of Defense position when he was offered it, and so President Truman, somewhat ironically, asked Forrestal who accepted it. Forrestal's first test as Secretary of Defense was to prepare the unified budget for fiscal year 1950. Forrestal's advisors were horrified that he had not intended to exercise any budgetary control. General McNarney pointed to 35 different guided missiles under development. He wanted the secretary to stamp out this duplication, also laying blame on the Research and Development Board for this, quote, most fundamental of all deficiencies, end quote. The Research and Development Board tried and failed to bring order to over 18,000 defense R&D projects. Information necessary for consolidating duplicative projects were hampered by different accounting standards and reporting requirements. By the time the board received project cards, nearly one-third were completed, canceled, or superseded. R&D projects were simply too complicated and fast-moving for outsiders to bring order. The munitions board encountered similar limitations to rationalizing procurement and supply. Material specifications could not easily be standardized and aggregated into bulk orders. Ridiculous assignments of equipment occurred, such as assigning army cranes mounted on caterpillar tracks to Navy shipyards. The munitions board staff doubled between 1949 and 1950 due to the increasing number of procurement decisions it had to make on behalf of lower echelons. While overseeing the developments in unification, Forrestal could not convincingly articulate the logic for decentralized competition. He struggled against widespread belief in central planning. Yet Forrestal could never clarify the link between disorder and military economy. Instead, he often invoked anecdotal experience from Wall Street or the war as justification. Quote, The Germans, to some degree, were victims of overplanning for the last war. The planning was probably more precise and nearly complete than in the history of any other nation. But the unplanned American economy, once the issue was joined, was far able to outstrip them. End quote. Despite his opposition to centralization, Forrestal argued in his first annual report that the Secretary of Defense's authority should be materially strengthened. He struggled to control the rivalrous services, reportedly leaving him weeping at his desk. There were allegations of nervous breakdowns. On March 1, 1949, President Truman asked Forrestal to resign. With the end of his public service close at hand, an exhausted Forrestal testified to the Congress. He now supported consolidation of procurement and adding new layers of administration. As he explained to Congress, quote, After having viewed the problem at close range for the past 18 months, I must admit to you quite frankly that my position on the question has changed, end quote. Four days after his testimony, on March 28, 1949, Forrestal was replaced as Secretary of Defense and his mental health quickly deteriorated. Concerned friends flew him to a winter home in Florida. Forrestal, however, insisted that the beaches were covered with hidden microphones. On April 2nd, he was flown back to Bethesda Hospital for psychiatric treatment. Two days later, authorities reported 
that Forrestal leapt from the 16th floor window and killed himself. The life of James Forrestal has something of a cinematic aspect to it, from his stellar rise on Wall Street and in Washington to his downfall precipitated by tragic character flaws. The story is complete with rumors of an assassination by secret conspiracy. Forrestal represented the view that there was an accumulated wisdom in defense management after World War II, that it was more effective than its critics realized. Most people, however, believe that scientific planning could reduce the need for duplication and wasteful competition. Critics pointed to the fact that Forrestal failed to set priorities. For example, the Navy competed with the Air Force in the nuclear strike mission despite budget cuts. While the Air Force pursued a new heavy bomber, the Navy laid the keel of a new supercarrier. The duplication was unaffordable. Not until after Forrestal's resignation did the Secretary of Defense cancel the Navy's supercarrier, prompting the revolt of the admirals. One of Forrestal's critics in this regard was his longtime friend and colleague Ferdinand Eberstadt. Forrestal brought Eberstadt into defense after Pearl Harbor, where he became the chairman of the munitions board, godfather of the controlled materials plan, and primary author of the Navy's post-war reorganization plan. Yet after witnessing Forrestal's failure, Eberstadt wanted to find a way of coordinating priorities without vesting too much power in the Secretary of Defense. His focus turned to the budget process. Before Congress, Eberstadt testified, quote, The National Security Act recognized the importance of the budget function and, in effect, made it the principal means by which the Secretary of Defense carried out his duties to establish policies and programs and to take appropriate steps to eliminate duplication and overlapping among the departments. In the exercise of his power over the budget, by far the most important general management and control in the secretary's hands, the secretary will require stronger agencies of administration and a review. Eberstock concluded that the Secretary of Defense did not need to actively administer the Army, Navy, and Air Force in order to set top-level program policy. Yet the existing budget did not provide information on military outputs, like Navy carriers and Air Force bombers. It only controlled organizations and objects of expenditures, like facilities, contracts, personnel. Budgets only controlled inputs. For example, a Navy aircraft carrier did not have dedicated budget line items. Instead, the basic structure of the Navy's budget was organizational, including the Bureau of Ships, Bureau of Yards and Docks, and the Bureau of Ordnance. Each of these organizations had partial responsibility for fielding combat-ready aircraft carriers. In no place was the program's cost fully visible in the budget. Certainly, there was much information on aircraft carrier contracts and accounting costs, but this historical data was not directly fed into future budgets. The idea of a program budget would allow top administrators to actually see all of the things going on in terms of programs and eliminate duplication and overlap. No longer would you see inputs, and instead you would see outputs. Eberstadt personally saw to writing the budget reform into legislation. Title IV outlined how budgets would expose programs, objectives, and activities rather than organizations and objectives of expenditure. In a little marketing, this was branded the performance budget. 
without representation from either the Army or the Air Force in its preparation and little debate before Congress, Title IV was added to the National Security Act in 1949. Yet the first program budget, scheduled for fiscal year 1952, never got fully implemented. The emergencies of the Korean War led to a series of crash budgets which took precedent over careful programming that required at least two years lead time. For several years after Title IV was enacted, the performance budget remained very much a paper plan. For the Army, where the organizations and programs misaligned, some scoffed at it and passed budgets whether or not the program has caught up to it. The Air Force, which organized itself around the program concept, was still regarded by many, including some of its own staff, to be an opportunistic and largely unplanned organization. In a book entitled Program Budgeting, Theory and Practice, Frederick Moser analyzed the Title IV budget reforms. By the time of the book's publication in 1954, the 40-year-old Moser had already a prolific career as a scholar-practitioner. Moser was born into public administration royalty. His father was a respected administrative scholar and school dean. Moser's practical experience came from working for the City of Los Angeles, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and the Army Air Forces. His scholarly pedigree came with a Harvard diploma, a Syracuse professorship, and lead role as editor for Public Administration Review, during which time he published program budgeting. Mosher emphasized the fundamental changes brought on by the budget reforms. As Mosher argued, quote, The performance budget represents quite a radical departure from previous practice and previous ways of thinking. It is simply that when we budget and authorize funds, we are providing for things to be done rather than for things to be bought. Money are furnished for activities and functions rather than for purchases and payments. Almost our entire experience and heritage in government financial control is the other way around. In a sense, this amounts to substituting ends for means as the focal point of financial planning and control. The difference is not merely one of technique and method. It is a basic departure in the way of thinking. It is not surprising that the performance budget has not been accomplished overnight. Not only must new estimating methods and control techniques be developed, the very minds of the citizens, the congressmen, and perhaps most of all, the administrator must be trained to think in different terms. For all of our history, and long before it, we have conceived of financial management in the accounting terms of items to be paid for, rather than the programs to be accomplished, end quote. Mosher noticed how dramatic a change the program budgeting was compared to existing methods of financial management. Rather than controlling the availability of resources, program budgets controlled technical direction. It presumed that financial leaders like the comptroller were in the best place to make product decisions. But that only worked under static technical conditions where work units could be calculated. For example, if highway construction is a program, then the rational basis for estimating the budget is the average historical cost per mile multiplied by the total desired number of miles. One can imagine this gets complicated as the terrain changes such as mountains and bridges. It becomes even more difficult for state-of-the-art weapon system where there is no work unit. Mosher continued, quote, 
The controller epitomizes, in the organizational sense, the supremacy of objective facts and figures in business management and the recognition, as the ultimate criterion of success, of the profit and loss and balance statements. Where objectives and accomplishments can be technically measured, there is reason to juxtapose or even identify the technique with policy and program determination. But where they cannot be, such a relationship may well constitute a triumph of technique over purpose. In less cryptic terms, such an application of controller concepts may contribute to the elevation of subsidiary purposes, which are measurable, over primary purposes, which are not measurable. The emphasis in program and performance upon activities where a showing can be demonstrated and proven by facts and figures. The application of techniques to situations and problems for which they were not designed and are not suited. The incentive to show short-range economy in lieu of long-range effectiveness. End quote. Comptrollership sought the scientific management of complex operations using facts and figures. The concept assumed that controllers could not only collect relevant facts, but could interpret them and direct policy improvement based on them. However, the difficulty of measuring the value of government programs means that the controller only has unsatisfactory metrics, which, if they were strictly measured against, may lead to unintended consequences. The authority of the controller and the program budget are intimately tied. The controller's authority over the program budget is the springboard for his authority over programs and plans. The comptroller's authority over program budgets presents an inconsistency to Mosher. He noted that planning and forecasting functions associated with the budget differed entirely from the essentially backwards-looking functions involved in almost all of the rest of his organization. Accounts, records, audits, management audits, reports, and program analysis have to do with what is and what was. Mosher reasoned that if the budget was primarily a historical document that projected forward past rates of expenditure, then it belonged in the hands of the comptroller. If, however, the budget was primarily a future plan, then it belonged in the organizations responsible for executing the plan. Though many argued program budgets would reduce bureaucracy, Mosher explained why the programming was extremely difficult budgeting and claimed its simplicity a delusion. He identified two inherent problems of the program budget, the problem of time and the problem of classification. First, the problem of time. The programming process forced another layer of planning on top of the traditional budgeting process. Programs had to be articulated two years in advance of funding receipt in order to accommodate the one year allotted to budget preparation and review. Moreover, it can take four or more years for agencies to obligate and then spend authorized funding. Program plans are thus articulated potentially six or more years ahead of execution. Mosher concluded that programming was impossible at the average installation because it doesn't have information that far in advance. The second problem of classification was more nuanced. Mosher pointed to the simple example of Fort Benning. The commander should plausibly have all his functions funded through a single source aligned with his military program. However, in support of Fort Benning is a medical facility. Should the head of the medical facility report through Fort Benning's commander 
and his military program, or through the Surgeon General and his medical program. If the former, the Surgeon General loses control of the medical program, the total cost of which is not under his appropriation. If the latter, the commander at Fort Benning, a multifunction organization, begins to lose all control over his subordinate with each of them reporting to a different program and boss. Mosher demonstrated how the same issue in medical care extended to military personnel, training, installation support, and perhaps most of all, the technical services and bureaus, whose operations supported nearly every identifiable military program. Program budgeting implied that a single organizational unit must handle all aspects of the budgeted project. As former Secretary of the Air Force Robert Lovett explained, quote, The whole idea of the performance budget is to set up a unit that is going to cost so much, put some fellow in charge of it, and give him the authority and hold him responsible. End quote. The result is strong central direction from the staff because the program was devised prior to the performing organization. The Air Force aligned themselves to the program budget from the start because they did not have a long history of in-house technical services or bureaus. The Army and Navy did not adjust so quickly. The Navy did not comply with the intent of the Title IV performance budget. The Navy molded its program structure around its existing system of bureaus. The fundamental basis remained organizational. The Navy's Bureau of Ordnance, for example, attempted to develop guided missiles by constructing high-speed aerodynamic studies carried out by captured supersonic wind tunnels from the Germans. The Navy's Bureau of Aeronautics, however, believed itself naturally competent for such work and funded its own rocket and missile programs. Though molding programs around existing organizations retained the linkage between fiscal and administrative authority, it permitted duplicative efforts within the single service. Unlike the Navy, the Army attempted to comply with the program budget, but unlike the Air Force, it had strong technical services which jointly worked on programs. The result was a mismatch. In the Army's budget process, the technical services sent up budget information by organization and object to the Army staff, which then translated that information using statistics and guesswork into program elements for submission to Congress. The appropriations were then translated back by staff for lower-level administration. This had two major effects. First, there was no way to know whether the Army complied with the budgeted programs, and second, it marked a major shift in power from the chiefs of the technical services to the chief of the Army's staff. Mosier concluded, quote, The budget plan and the program plan of a large agency may quite properly and necessarily not be the same thing. Their scope and coverage are almost certain to differ in some respect. Their relation in time periods differs. The organization units and individuals primarily concerned for each may be different. The channels through which they proceed may well be parallel but not identical. End quote. Mosher recommended that the Pentagon adopt a budget along organizational lines that went as follows. First, each command or technical service should constitute an organic class in the budget. Second, each subcommand, a class at the second level. Third, each installation, a class at the third level. And fourth, each activity at the installation, a fourth level. 
While the program budget laid dormant in the 1950s because it was never fully implemented, Mosher foresaw in 1954 that programming would foster the rise of a new class of specialism associated with statistics and cost-effectiveness studies. Quote, if the business concept of comptrollership is pushed hard by its supporters within and outside the department, it could conceivably lead to an outright struggle for power and control between military specialism and accounting specialism. In such a struggle, there can be little doubt who in the long run would win. More likely is a gradual emergence of a compromise involving the absorption of a new type of specialism, more or less divorced from military command and planning channels, responsible for dollars, numbers, records, and budgets, end quote. The takeover of military weapons choice by accounting specialists and the destruction of the Navy's bureaus and Army technical services were still in the future. For the program budget wouldn't take hold of the Pentagon until the rise of a comptroller from the automotive industry, Robert McNamara. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945 to 1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.